Welcome to Culture Conversations, a podcast that helps disciples make disciples in today's world. I'm Chris Moran, host of Culture Conversations, and today you'll be hearing from Caleb Bruski, a church planter in Oradia, Romania. Caleb is married to Alexandra, and they have one daughter. Caleb shares what it's like growing up as a missionary kid to ministering in former communist Romania, what it's like sharing the gospel with a very religious people group, and the need for having both grace and truth in ministry. I trust you'll be encouraged. All right, so here we are. I am with Caleb. How do you say your last name, my brother? Bruski. Bruski. I love it. That's a great last name. Polish. All the way from Romania. Yes, sir. Yeah. Glad glad you could be here, brother. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah. I'd love to hear your story. Uh, As we were just speaking a moment ago, many people don't even know where Romania is on the map, and it's an ocean away. And so I'd love to hear, one, how you got there. Two, what was your experience growing up there? And then three, when, at what point in your story did you come to know Jesus savingly, regenerationally? Yeah, so that's, those are a lot of really good questions. But um, I, I guess we'd have to start with how I grew up and, and where that happened. Uh, I spent half my life in Romania and then the other half in America. Okay. By the way, Romania is in Europe, not Africa, contrary to some, <laughs> contrary to some popular opinion. Um, so growing up in the States, my dad was a, a UPS driver till I was about five years old, but they were always heavily involved in church. What in the, state? Georgia. Georgia. Right. Yep. Down South in Georgia where always hot. Oh yeah. Um, anyways, uh, he was working UPS for a while and my mom was a stay at home mom. Okay. And then, uh, they got heavily involved in children's ministry and my dad ended up becoming a children's pastor, went to seminary. So I was raised in a godly home, always going to church, uh, raised in that environment. And, and I was saved at a very young age. The Lord showed mercy to me at a very young age. Um, like I grew up memorizing Bible verses and everything. And I remember my first time I ever asked God to forgive me of my sins was at about four and a half years mm. old. You it can was, remember that? Yeah, I do. Wow. Uh, we were in the, my sisters were at school and I was with my mom. My mom was in the car. We were listening to something on the radio about, I don't remember what pastor it was, but they were just talking about like repentance and sin and all that stuff. And I was like, mom, I want to give my life to Christ. Mm. So, um, it was like, I think it was May 18th. I don't remember what year it was, but, you but if four. I did the math, yeah, yeah, if I did the math, I could go back and amazing. remember it. Um, and yeah, ever since then followed Christ, uh, you know, sanctification has ups and downs. So there are definitely some low points in my life and high points and everything, but through it all, Christ has been faithful. Yeah. So that's the kind of environment I grew up in. And uh, once my dad took on the full-time pastoring job at the church, uh, I spent every day at church almost. Yeah. It was like, what kind of denomination or church was it? So that was Baptist, okay. Southern Baptist. It's, the it, denomination Southern Baptist? Uh, it's just, they're part of the SBC. Okay. So, but yeah, that's the first Baptist church of Loganville. It's nice. The, uh, There's a lot of first church. Baptists. Yeah, there. they're all first. <laughs> There's even second and third and that's fourth. Right. So. Not to nag on, but whatever. You could think of more creative names. For sure. Um, so growing up in that environment, absolutely grew up loving Christ. Um, then in, when I was in sixth grade, uh, we took a trip to Romania. That was a Christmas. My parents, my mom always had this radical idea that they were going to be missionaries. Like that was her thing. She's like, I, I love the work that we do, but I feel that one day we're going to be missionaries. Maybe when the kids are gone or whatever. 
So anyways, uh, one day my parents were watching BBC News and they, mm-hmm. were, they watched um, a video about abandoned babies uh, and how they were, they were born, the parents couldn't take care of them, so they left them at the hospital. And the hospital like, would literally just tie them to the bed mm-hmm. and a lot of, social, lot of mental disorders with the, the children that are abandoned. And uh, anyways, we wanted to help. We wanted to be building orphan homes and taking in those orphans or putting them into families. We didn't really know what we wanted to do. We just knew we wanted to help. Yeah, just want to help. So went there, I think in 2004 on a mission trip, 2005, moved over there. Whoa. Yeah. Um, so what grade are you in, eighth? No, that was, um, it was at the end of sixth grade that we okay. moved over. Wow. So. I, we we went in between fifth and sixth grade, I think, and then um, sixth grade actually took the plunge. And so you're like 11, 12 years old. Yeah, 11 years old I was. Um, so 11 years old, moved over to Romania, and since then just worked with my parents doing uh, different ministries. That we always had a heavy ex- uh, emphasis on the widow and orphan mm. and the lower income class. And that's what we always wanted to work with the less fortunate people. Yeah. So, uh, they would, in my parents' ministry, they would always, we would always do, um, like, uh, food programs, helping people get on track, plugging people into churches and, uh, ended up, I ended up, uh, helping with, uh, planting a church there. So nice. with your, with your dad, with my dad, um, working out in the village, they, again, since we worked in lower income, we always worked in the village area of Romania, not necessarily in an urban environment gotcha. because, uh, in Romania, the culture is two totally different things. If you have the city, city life is thriving. You have one of the fastest internet speeds in the world. Hmm. You have malls, you have electricity, um, still, it's within like uh, communist-style apartment buildings. There are some new ones coming up, but uh, so still ugly architecture. But actually, there's some really pretty architecture as well. But mostly, that's like in the mayor's office okay. and on the the walking street and stuff like that. But um, yeah, so city life is beautiful. It's great. It's fun. Everyone's on uh, standard European salary. But if you go out into the village, just like five minutes outside the village, you'll see ha- tons of houses with uh, no water, no electricity. Mm little education and just totally different world. Is it more rural than urban? Um, the country as a whole, it is more urban. I mean, more rural. It's total country. Mm. You just have pockets of, uh, civilization. And then the rest of it's just, uh, mountains and hills. Mm. Actually, Romania is one of the only countries in Europe that has all the land types. You have plateaus, plains, hills, Mm. mountains. So, very geographically pleasing to yeah, drive I was gonna say through. it's probably beautiful. Oh, it's really beautiful. You have the Carpathian Mountains. You have uh, lots of castles as well. Dracula's Castle. No is way. In Romania, yeah. Vladimir have the Impaler. I have not personally seen it. It's not worth the sixteen-hour drive there. So, <laughs> oh, yeah, right. Uh, but my parents have seen it, and my sister has seen it, and they've shown pictures. So I feel like I've been there. Right. But no. Uh, so Romania is a beautiful place. But uh, growing up with my parents in ministry, we always worked in the in the the village area. But then, um, once I got married and I knew I wanted to get into ministry, I went ahead and did, um, I got my bachelor's in, in, uh, apologetics, Christian, nice. uh, Christian worldview through what, uh, school, uh, another Baptist school is through Luther Rice university okay. and seminary down South, right next to stone mountain in Georgia. Okay. But this so you was, came back to the States or did you do it online? I did it online. Right. And that was the selling point for me for that college. It was either, there were only two schools at the time that offered full degrees online. 
Uh, so this, that ages. Sure. <laughs> now everyone does everything yeah, right. online. Especially in COVID, man. Everyone's online. Now. Yeah, I know. Um, but it was either Liberty or um, this one. And what's cool about this school is that it was right next to my home church. So I actually had one of the people that my parents discipled through children's school, uh, through their children's ministry in America. Uh, those people actually became professors oh, at cool. that school. So I had the professors that were taught by my parents. That's great. So Nice so, connection. Yeah, it was. I, I really enjoyed um, many aspects of the school. So what were you studying in apologetics specifically? Was it other religions? Was it like postmodernism? Like what was your emphasis? Uh, so we did have uh, a lot of emphasis. It was more based on what the current culture is in America. So a lot okay. of postmodernism. But you did have to do uh, all the world religions. You had to do a lot of philosophy. Um, what... And uh, epistemology, mm-hmm. how do we know what we know, mm-hmm. and uh, how to talk about, um, how to talk with and engage with those different types of faiths. So, I mean, it was very useful. I do enjoy um, studying, reading those types of things. But looking back on it now, I probably would have gone back and focused more on biblical studies mm-hmm. because a lot of the studies that I took at the time were like, let me prove Christianity to you without the Bible. Yeah. And now I'm presuppositional. I was just going to ask, was it presuppositional? No, it wasn't. Uh, so there were there were a couple classes that were precept, but other ones were not. Most of them were not. So, so for those listening, I'm, I, I know some people are not apologists apologists here. So explain briefly in layman's terms what's the difference between presuppositional and evidential? Because uh, those are the two main, I would say. Yeah, those are the two main, and you kind of get a spectrum between the two. But uh, evidentialist is kind of the idea that you start with man, and you can reason your way up to God. And then presuppositionalist is like, no, we believe that man is depraved, and he will reject the truth even if it comes to him. So uh, you need God to reveal himself top down, and that's how we—you can't reason your way to God, essentially. That's a good way to say it. Yeah. I really appreciate that. Yeah. yeah. Thanks. Yeah, so you start with the assumption that God exists in presuppositional apologetics mm-hmm. and that man is running from him. Romans 1 would say that uh, they know he exists. But, but then it's, isn't it interesting yeah. that it says, from what he has made? Mm-hmm. You know, so the, the evidence is, hey, you got a heart beating, your lungs breathe without you telling it to breathe. You know, the, the heavens declare the glory of God. And this is, in, in a sense, enough evidence. Um, but... The knowing that God exists doesn't just come from what he has made. He's put in us also a soul. Ecclesiastes says that he's put eternity into the hearts of men, mm-hmm. right? So how, how, do you, how did you go from being an evidentialist in training to a presuppositionalist? Is it just you got like post training or did you listen to too much um, like <laughs> post-millennial guys? Like, um, so... Uh, I don't even know how to describe it. I've always been, not, I haven't, I can't say I've always been reformed, but that came along at about the age 13. I was, I was reformed, but I didn't really pan it out, like what that actually means. So I didn't let that approach my methodology and sharing the gospel per se. Um, But then I started just reading and listening and uh, one of the big influences, he's, he's not actually post mill, it's James White Mm -hmm. on the dividing line. They have, Mm -hmm. you know, awesome podcast and everything. Um, but, uh, listening to him and talking between the two, uh, I would listen to William Lane Craig and he's like a staunch evidentialist. Mm -hmm. Let's do that. And then listening to 
James White when he's preaching about it. And he's like, well, if you're reformed and you hold to that man is depraved, and he's going to reject the truth. Even if you present it most clearly to him, he's going to say, no, that's not for me. My, I don't want it. You know? And if I, I, thought, I saw a clear distinction in theology. So it was like what I'm professing to believe and what I want to practice and sharing my faith is they're kind of at, at odds with each other, mm-hmm. you know? So uh, once I got more into studying more theology into how do you actually share the gospel with people and uh, how, do you, how do you expect the Holy Spirit to work within their hearts and is that a necessary step unto salvation, mm. uh, then I began to be like, yeah, that absolutely has to because the theology dictated uh, what I believe about you know, how to share the gospel. Yeah, yeah, the method. Mm-hmm. So you, you do have reform guys like Sproul mm-hmm. and even uh, Schaefer has a kind of a hybrid apologetic uh, that's, I think, both and. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you have the, the presuppositionalist light like uh, like your Tim Keller's in mm-hmm. The Reason for God. Um, do you think that there's any benefit to reasoning from evidence like manuscripts and prophecy and scriptural cohesiveness. Yeah. I don't want a dog on evidentialists at all. Like I have a bookshelf full of all their stuff because I think that those things are beneficial to saints. I think that they help encourage faith. Like when I finished reading one of my favorite books that I've ever read was, um, starlight and time. Uh, the the name of the author escapes me, but it was essentially, a young earth argument to earth. Like how do we see stars billions of light years away if the world is only a few hundred, you know, a few thousand years old. Yeah. Something along those lines. 5,000 years old. Yeah. Yeah. Within the relatively small time frame, how do you see the stars and everything outside Millions and billions of light. And he went through like the math of how it's whatever. And all that clearly from an evidentialist standpoint, but man, I was greatly encouraged by it. So, it's not that I dog the work. It's that that work and that tool, I think, is misapplied. Okay. It shouldn't be used necessarily in an evangelistic setting, but more for encouraging the saints. So I encourage people to go read, you know, like read the cosmological argument, know what it means, and read the existential arguments. And what does that mean? So I think that Christians shouldn't fear those things, but we should, you know, embrace those things because yeah. they are for our benefit and they are true. So yeah, I mean... Yeah. It's just, uh, just know that when you are evangelizing on the street, that the man's heart is hardened to all those truths. One of the things that I always say to uh, people at my church, they're like, hey, I have an atheist friend at school. How do I share the gospel? How do I, how do I engage with him? And the first thing they want to talk about is like tree stumps and dinosaur skulls. And, and I'm like, you know, even if you could get to a maybe, let's just say like, you could talk to him about tons of different categories and say, all right, let's argue and say maybe this tree is 10,000 years old or maybe, you know, just open up the possibility to it, maybe being a young earth. Would you then worship God? Mm. And the answer is absolutely no. not because yeah. there's something deeper there than just a belief that a tree is old or that carbon dating says this or that, you know, all the typical arguments that you see, those are just excuses for the underlying or symptoms, you could say, for the underlying disease, which is a heart of stone that rejects Christ. Right. Dead in sin, mm-hmm. unable to believe unless given the ability. Um, so would you say that there is such a thing as a myth of neutrality? Yes, okay. of course. I don't think anybody's neutral. Everyone comes in with presuppositions. And that's what presuppositionalism is, is that we we begin with God, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's good. I, I really appreciate that, man. And I, and I, I appreciate the, the evidentialists um, 
And I think that there, there is benefit in using it sometimes, Mm -hmm. but I'm wholeheartedly with you that unless God is drawing the person, I mean, that's clearly John 6, 44 and 65, unless God draws them, they cannot come. Mm -hmm. And the reason they cannot come is because they don't want to. And we never do what we don't want to do. And the reason Mm -hmm. we don't want to is because we're dead in sin and we have a love affair with sin Mm -hmm. and we won't come to the light for fear. Our deeds will be exposed. Yeah. Right. So I, I, I do though think there is benefit in understanding, as you said, for a Christian, uh, the, the science and the, you know, the maps is the acronym I like to use manuscript Mm -hmm. evidence, um, archeology, span prophecy, scriptures, coherency throughout the whole 66 books. Mm -hmm. But I, I, I don't often get into those discussions with non-Christians. Yeah. Um, it's often not on their radar. However, I will bring it up sometimes, mm-hmm. but I'm with you brother, that the gospel is the power of God and the salvation. The Holy spirit uses that message to open up the heart. And, um, so do you like Van Til? Uh, yeah. I mean, his books are a little, they're expensive to find. Like I was looking on Amazon <laughs> the other day and it's like for a hard copy of something, it's like $400. I was like, what is up? With that? That's crazy. I, I think you can get the Kindle versions much cheaper. Yeah. Well, I'm still shopping around. But, okay. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah the, the Westminster guys, you know, Van Til was at Westminster, mm-hmm. and then they, they have kind of created a wide range of presuppositionalists, which, mm-hmm. which I appreciate. Have you ever heard of, and we'll get back to your story, but I think this is an interesting side road. Um, have you ever heard of uh, a method called experiential apologetics? Uh, no, but based on the name, I could guess what it is. Okay. <laughs> So the idea would be that um, the experience of believers is in itself a testimony, mm-hmm. and you could and and you could go with the um, the longing of mm-hmm. people. Their longings, even though they express themselves in sinful ways, they're actually longing for what God is mm-hmm. ultimately going to do. Yeah, you know. So the uproar about riots and justice right now that's very prevalent in the states mm-hmm. within the last few months. Uh, is actually a longing for the recreation and and God's justice ruling and reigning over the earth. You mm-hmm. know, it's God's glory uh, that that will fill the earth mm-hmm. as the waters cover the sea. They're longing for that now, but they're trying to bring it bring it about in a way that won't work. Mm-hmm. You know, but the the underlying longing is actually something that only God can give. Yeah. And so there's a there's a way you can get from the, your experience to the scriptures, which mm-hmm. I think. Um, is helpful to help people tie those things together. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. So your experience points to God in its totality, which may be presuppositional, uh, but you're, you're using the evidence of their life mm-hmm. to say, uh, you realize that what you really want is what God's going to do someday. Yeah. And then, you know, maybe that's just an open door to get into other opportunities and methodologies, but, but it's taking someone's experience, mm-hmm. you know, so how, how do we know that there is such a thing as right and wrong period and who mm-hmm. defines that? And, you know, if there is no superior, this is right and this is wrong and it, and it stops here, mm-hmm. there is no higher authority, then who are you to say this is right and this is wrong? Mm-hmm. Um, so the longing for justice itself is a longing for God because he is the only just God. But we might not like his justice versus our justice mm-hmm. because we are then guilty as well in that system. Yeah. We like the lines, but on the 
other side of us, you know, like that's really wrong. But if you, if you end up on the wrong side of the fence, then you're like, well, I don't like whoever put the fence there. It's offensive to me. Right. The the way I like to think about it is we don't, we like justice when it's not aimed at us. Mm -hmm. Right. Because if it's aimed at us, we're guilty. I Mm -hmm. mean, and we know it and our consciences condemn us. And, you know, I think that one day the judgment is going to look like God, just allowing the conscience to be laid bare and to feel the weight of sin and to um, be able to be in his presence in such a way where the guilt is just manifest, the Mm -hmm. guilt, the fear, the shame, you know, the garden exposure of Adam and Eve. Anyway, I didn't know if you had heard about that or if you experienced any of that in your apologetics. So I've heard from, uh, first one that comes to mind is John Piper wrote a book called um, experiencing and savoring Jesus Christ, Mm -hmm. I think it's called. Mm -hmm. And in his first chapter, he talks about um, the idea of knowing Christ. And it kind of follows the same argument where he says, like, nobody argues that the sun is not bright Mm. because the sun is bright. Like there's a like you don't have to look at the the manuscripts or the archaeology and be like, well, is the sun really bright? Like right. it's just so obvious that it, it's bright that nobody debates it. You don't right. debate those things. And he says the same thing with Christ. You can get a uh, when Christ when the Holy Spirit works within you, Christ works in such a way that it's obvious that He's there and that mm. He's good. Like it, it's just so you experience it to such a level that you know it. You don't need to have all the archaeology and. All the other sports, it's prophecy. Yeah, yeah, like Christ is is, uh, strong enough of evidence on his own Mm. that he doesn't need supporting evidence around it. So that's that's kind of pre-sup, I guess. And 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 there's lines that you know I think are blurry. Like, Mm -hmm. what exactly is this? But I I I think that you know, taste and see that the Lord is good is a direct quote from scripture. Mm -hmm. Well, one of the ways that we can do that is we can taste literally all the food that he has made. Mm -hmm. And it literally points to his goodness. Like, wow, a God that would create taste buds and this kind of, of fruit and the varieties of fruits, and then the geographical locations producing different kinds of fruit. And Mm -hmm. there's, it is kind of an evidence, but you're also saying, um, this is experiential. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. <laughs> I'm just curious. You, if you're an apologist, uh, I didn't know if you um, run into any of these. I have a bachelor's. By training. Okay, <laughs> by <know>. training. <laughs> I'm not a professional in any stretch of the imagination. That's great. We'll probably get back into some of that. So so you go to Romania, and you're studying online, and you're doing apologetics. Mm-hmm. And uh, at that point, my heart towards pastoring people is very small. Mm. I'll just say that straight up. My love for theology is super high, but my love for God's people is not very high. In fact, I'm like kind of sick of church. Mm. Like, I'm like, I don't even want to go to church uh, just because people are hypocrites and there's no real benefit to it. Mm. That, from my point of view, I think I could get more out of, you know, watching the pastors I love online and just, I'm doing everything online, so why not do church online? It makes sense. So uh, that was something that God definitely beat out of me later on. But at that point in my life during college, I just, um, I loved theology. And uh, I just wanted to go, I had my sword ready. I was ready to go chop down some uh, bad theology and cut it off at the knees. Some and everything. non-biblical ideology. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, so that's what I wanted to do. And then I started doing uh, Bible studies with my dad uh, out in the village where they were working. And um, through those Bible studies, ended up making a church. And then through the church, um, 
like we were, we were, it was kind of on and off. The church was super small. It was consistent of me and my family and maybe two or three others. And on some Sundays, no one even came. To yeah. The, so it was just your family. Yeah. Uh, and that's how we started. And I kind of got upset with it. I was like, well, it's fine. They just can't handle the truth. <laughs> you know, that was my, that was my thing. I was like, well, I scared them away with the truth. Well, it's cause they can't handle the truth. Mm. So, and it, I didn't think for a second that it was maybe my approach. Maybe it was, you know, my lack of love for people. So anyways, um, it's kind of like Jesus came full of grace yeah. and truth. And, uh, brother, I, I'm with you. I, I resonate because those early years of discovering John Calvin and the doctrines of grace and uh, apologetics, mm-hmm. you know, you, you do lack a bit of love, um, they call it the cage stage yeah. uh, for those who know. And, and you can just hammer people with, you know, the, the truth is like a weapon and you're, mm-hmm. you're, you're hammering people with it. And your intent, at least my intent, sometimes was to smash people. Like I wasn't mm-hmm. trying to uh, love them into the faith. Uh, I was trying to win an argument and smash people's yeah. you know, falsities. Yeah. Well, during the church preaching period, uh, God did put within me um, more love for the flock. And mm-hmm. I was like, I need to be more merciful towards these people. And one of the big examples was uh, Peter. You know, you see him betraying Christ and everything. And then at the very end, he's like, do you love me? Okay, well, then feed my sheep. Yeah, yeah. And I was reading that. And I was like, well, I love God. I need to feed the sheep, mm-hmm. you know. Uh and including myself in the sheep like fold, realizing that I'm no one, I'm not superior, I'm not a step above yeah. or anything like that. So just working through that text, uh, God worked within me, a passion for church planting. Uh, now, how old were you when this was going down, the whole Peter thing, realizing like, man, I'm, I'm being a little bit too aggressive maybe with the truth. I'm not loving people with the scriptures. So this is about um, 19 years old, 18 years old. Okay. How old yeah. are you now? 26. Okay. Yeah. Um, so I've been, I probably started pastoring a church earlier than I should have, but it, you know what, it, it all worked for God's And you're glory. co-pastoring with your father, right? Yeah. Um, but I took all the teaching responsibilities mm. on myself. So your dad was not teaching and preaching? Uh, very rarely. So it was mostly me just preaching. Wow. And At also, that young of age? Yeah. Yep. So. And are you married yet? Not at this point in the okay. story. Nope. Um, uh, then I did get married. Um, I got married at 21 okay. and my wife and I were really considering, uh, what to do because the church in the, in Centelic is about, um, we had about five or six native people plus our family, plus, uh, some friends of ours. So we were averaging about 20 some people on a Sunday, okay. which was, it's really a decent sized church for Europe, okay. you know, like in America, everyone's like, oh, 100 people, small church. Right. <laughs> no, that's a huge church. In, yeah, and in from Europe. where you're at, that would be a, like a mega church. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we were actually bigger than the other, um, some other neighboring churches in the village, and people were kind of mad at us, but we didn't know that at the time, so whatever. Mm. We didn't really care, and it wasn't really about the numbers, because I was right. all about God's sovereignty. Right. <laughs> so um, anyways, got married, and my wife and I were really considering what to do. So at one point we were considering coming back to America just because financially, uh, we weren't cutting it. We were like, man, this serving God is great, but can't we serve God and be a little bit more comfortable? Mm. So we were like, let's go back to the States. We can go in the Bible belt, you know, me being a, a pastor's kid and also being on the mission field for nine or 10 years. Like that's a pretty impressive Yeah, resume. you would get a good job. Yeah. That's church. what I was thinking. Uh, whatever. <laughs> My ego was blown at that point. Sure. I was like, I'll just get a job super easy. 
So, um, anyways, before I told my family that we were moving back to America, and I already told them like we're going back to Georgia. I plan on doing this. I'm looking at these jobs here, and um, my brother-in-law, Caleb, he said uh, with a P at the end. Not. Oh, I was going to say Caleb. that's interesting. Yeah, he's with a K and a P. Uh, anyways, he said, Hey, let's go to, let's go to Rome before you do, let's just do a guy's thing. So my dad, my brother, my brother-in-law and myself, we went to Rome and, uh, he said, let's go to Rome for the Acts 29 conference. That mm. was the second Acts 29 Europe conference they've ever done. And he was like, Matt Chandler is going to be there. And I was like, I don't care about Matt Chandler. I want to see the history. You know, I was all about the, the theology. I wanted to see the, yeah. the, the things that happened there. And I already had my mind, so I'm going to America, so I'm just going to go on this little trip. It's going to be fun. It's going to be a last hoorah, and then we'll go back to the States, and I'll do my church ministry over there and make a little bit more money. Um, and then uh, through the Acts 29 thing, uh, the conference... Yeah, was, these are like, just for those who don't know, these are like um, uh, what you would think of as a, as a business conference, but mm-hmm. there's preaching, there's breakout sessions, there's times of prayer, mm-hmm. you know, and, uh, and it's for Acts 29, the point is church planting and the complexities mm-hmm. of starting new churches and getting them off the ground. Uh, any, I don't know. I wasn't at the Europe one. I'm only speaking to the American ones. Is yeah. that pretty accurate? Yeah, it is. Uh, but the ones in Europe were, um, smaller scale because I've seen the American ones, but the European ones, I think we were like maybe 200, 300 people. Okay. How many countries probably represented though? <laughs> probably about two or 300. That's what I was thinking. <laughs> so yeah. I didn't meet, I met one other dude from Romania and we're actually still friends today. Cool. Um, so through that, I've grown a couple of relationships in Romania, but, uh, aside from that, there are people from like Albania and just hearing other pastors plea for their people and mm-hmm. like asking us to pray for them and just sharing like what God's doing there. And, uh, so just through, through hearing them talk about like what God's doing in their country, it really broke my heart to be like, man, I don't want to leave that behind. Like, mm-hmm. God can still do amazing things even through small churches. That was what, that was what my, I guess that's kind of what my brain was doing was I was thinking I need a big church in order to do big things. So I'm going to go back to the big nation of America and get plugged into the thousand plus members and then do write books and be the famous theologian, you know, whatever. Because Brewski has a catchy last <laughs> name for a book. <laughs> I don't know. That's kind I'll be of looking for that theology yeah. book someday. <laughs> no, I don't. I'm going to try to follow the don't write anything till you have 60 years of ministry under wise. your belt. Yeah, yeah and then do wise. and do that. Um, so yeah, the Acts 29 conference just really brought back an, a passion in me for small churches, mm. and I was like, God can do amazing things through small churches. And this and is prior to the Rural Collective, too. Yeah, this was prior. They were telling me, move to the city, move to the city. Mm. And that's kind of a message I wanted to hear because I also wanted to go to the city. Like, my heart was also like, I want to work in the city. Yeah. So God, um, then I definitely set my mind towards um, God is calling us not necessarily to work with my parents, but to separate and one day plant a church in the city of Aradia which was 30 minutes away from where we were currently. And um, they, again, the numbers there uh, is one for every, one church for every 9,000 people. So even if everybody decided like, hey, it's Easter, let's all go to church, you physically couldn't. Yeah, wow. Um, And 
even of those churches that do exist, they teach really bad theology there. I've heard in just some of the Protestant circles that like baptism is uh, salvific in nature. Mm, regenerational and, baptism. Yeah. Um, even in my wife's church, my wife, uh, she's Romanian. I forgot to mention that. She's nice. Romanian. She grew What's up What's your wife's name? Alexandra. And together we have a beautiful daughter, Abigail. She's pushing two years old right Love now. It. So, so yeah, love my family. They're great support and they're all in on church planting as well. Love it. Um, so you said her church taught baptism, baptismal uh, regeneration. In uh, the form. So not the church from the pulpit didn't preach that, okay. but the, nobody corrected it. Mm. And there were people that, um, at, at that specific church, they were saying to uh, someone who was going to get baptized the next day, uh, party it up, man, because tomorrow your new life begins. Whoa. It's almost like Lent. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, wow. so I was like, um, that's pretty bad. And if that thrives in that environment and just I've seen some of the church plants there's that come from that specific denomination uh, some of the, they don't have any theological training when they send somebody out to church plant. They just say, Hey, you look like you have the Holy spirit within you go and be blessed. Whoa. And they send them out and out in the village churches is where it's really bad. Like there is zero filter and speaking theologically, lots of interesting theories, heresies, and all that, all that, all that stuff. So yeah, um, and I mean, I don't want to diminish what God's doing in, in Arati because there are healthy, sound churches there as well, but it's just too few for so such a large population. Gotcha. And So uh, there's a need. There's a great need. Yeah, there is a great need, and, and we really felt that need. So uh, we knew that God was calling us to plant the church in Aradia. And uh, so my wife and I, about a year and a half ago, broke off from the, my parents' ministry, uh, totally just stepped out on our own and we're like, Hey, let's, let's do this. And, uh, we started with small groups in our home. We just invited some friends that we knew people that wanted to start a church and we, um, or people that were just looking for a Bible study. That's kind of how we pitched it at first. And then the Bible study slowly morphed into a gospel community. And, uh, now we have, um, we have a a number of people that want to fully dedicate to a church. So, uh, we actually came back to America. The reason we're here is because I wanted to raise some seed money so that we could rent a location and begin doing Sunday mornings. Nice. Yeah. So throughout the week, we had Bible studies going, but we haven't met together officially on like a worship service. On yeah, Sunday. you haven't launched. Yeah, we didn't yet. launch. We're pre-launch is, okay. is the best way to describe it. And and you've been stuck here in America since February. Yeah. So <laughs> the trip was supposed to be just from we came back to America February, late February, and we were supposed to be gone the week after Catholic Easter. Not to be confused with Orthodox Easter. Um, just Easter for Americans. Gotcha. So the week after Easter, we were supposed to be gone. Uh, but COVID-19, countries closing their borders yeah, and man. everything, and we just couldn't travel anywhere. So we kind of got stuck. But uh, some very gracious people down in Georgia took us in. That's great. And uh, we were able to stay, you know, we, we jumped from house to house a little bit, so we, we weren't too much of a burden on one person. But, uh, but yeah, they've been super gracious to us. And we're finally ready to go home. Nice. The borders are open. So July 1st, we'll be headed home. Love it. Very shortly, man. I know. Yeah. Um, so your church, what's the name? Metanoia. What does that mean? Uh, Greek for repentance. Love it. It's yeah. a great name for a church. Uh, Romanian, it's Biserica Metanoia. It's Metanoia Church. So. I love it. It's great. And... Um, 
you're also connected to the Act 29 network. What, how far are you in the process of assessment and all that? I did my official assessment um, about a year and a half ago okay. and uh, got my report card back with yeah. the corrections that needed to be done. Yeah. Uh, I've submitted my corrections back, and now I'm just waiting for a response for them. It's great. So it's great. What are you? The European network? Which, yes. Okay. Yep. And that's Romania still a more is part of right Europe, <laughs> not <laughs> Africa. Yes. <laughs> we were talking earlier, and uh, you you were telling me a story about one woman who was praying for your church, and they thought that Romania was a part of Africa, which is a funny story. Yeah. Thanks for this time in Africa. Okay. Yeah. I didn't want to interrupt. But right. Yeah, your eyebrow raised as you listened to her brain. Mm-hmm. It's so funny. Um, so uh, is Philip Moore your contact? Is he your guy? Uh, Philip Moore is involved in the A29 network. Uh, however, Gary oversees uh, assessment process. Gotcha. Okay. Um, and then you also have a partnership with Advance here in Pittsburgh, in yep. Gibsonia. Um, so what, what has that looked like practically? Just so that people listening can get a flavor for what Acts 29 does practically and not just philosophically and theologically. Mm-hmm. And so on the ground, what, what has that looked like? Yeah. So I met Scott and, uh, and some of his church guys back in, when we went to Rome and that's how that relationship started yeah, at that Acts 29 conference. In yeah. Rome. yeah. I mean, I wasn't, I knew that I wanted to get involved in church planting. Um, it's just that, uh, it wasn't fully fleshed out what that looked like. And I stayed in contact with Scott and then just over time, he helped me develop, like, I guess you could say a better theology into uh, church community. What does that look like? What does it look like to pastor a small church mm-hmm. instead of just aiming for a already established institutional church? What does it look like to raise a grassroots movement, yeah, I guess you could different. say? So just coaching in that has been uh, very valuable. And then uh, he's come over to Romania multiple times to... Uh, to see where we are in the church, give advice into what uh, next steps should look like. And I get super excited. I'm like, hey, man, let's just go ahead and do this. Let's buy this and, <laughs> and do all these things. He's like, oh, maybe you should invest more in the people and then work on, you know, your program. Because yeah. on paper, everything sounds great. Of You're just like, this is going to be easy. Let's just do it already. You can do this in six months and be done. But <laughs> nothing takes six months yeah, in church right. life. And, and God tends to lovingly throw you know wrenches into the spokes and yeah sometimes we even fly over the handlebars yeah <laughs> and so slam at, into the pavement at one point you were we were speaking earlier as we were coming to the church about like how you you just had plans and you're like all right i got the plan god fulfilled this plan mm-hmm. you know uh we had one of those instances where a friend of ours said uh hey there's this there's this huge house we built it ourselves and it has an open space concept i'll rent it to you for the price of an apartment mm. And it's right next to the city. It was, it was going to be perfect for small groups. Like it had the living room capacity. And that's what we really looked for. Because, yeah. you know, I mentioned earlier that all the apartment complexes there are uh, communist. So it's like sardines. Like mm. you, you can't fit more than four or five people into a room. It's just not. Almost like happen. dorms. In the yeah, States. exactly. They're meant for sleeping. That's mm. it. Uh, every, sleep and work, sleep and work. Yeah, yeah. Don't, yeah. don't do communism. I want to get into that in a minute, but continue your story. Yeah. So those were the the buildings and, and God just provided this location that we thought would be absolutely perfect. Right. So, uh, we moved in, we, we canceled our contract for renting this apartment that we were living in, moved into this new location. Uh, my birthday came, my wife bought me a dog, a German shepherd. So it's like a big dog, not an apartment dog. Right. Say, um, 
And then he calls me up literally the day after I bought a dog and said, Hey man, uh, just so you know, uh, I sold the house, so you guys can't stay there anymore. You'll have to move out by like a month and a half or something like that. So, and, and I mean, there was no contract. It was just verbal agreement. So we were like, well, whatever. But it, I didn't really know what God was doing at that time. And I was like, but God, I thought you wanted, we we're in this neighborhood that we could reach these people. And we have this living room to reach these people. And and literally one of the reasons I got the dog was just to be have an excuse. We didn't have a daughter at the time. I realized that children are great for evangelism. Yeah, you take them out. People are like, hey. Yeah, and I figured I'd do the same thing with the dog. You know, it gives me an excuse to walk outside, wave at my neighbor, and be like, hey, neighbor, who are right, you? You know, right. let me, let's be friends. You right. know, kind of. That was my uh, little naive, whatever, approach to evangelism at the time. But, um, but yeah, God shut that plan down real quick and ended up having to keep the dog at my parents' house. And we moved oh, back into an, a really small apartment. And, uh, I mean, we... We, we kept doing the, the church meetings and we kept yes. having small groups in our small apartment and everything. And I, I look back at those moments with, with uh, cherishment, I guess. You could, I don't mm. know. The, I love those moments because yeah. just being in, in the apartment and it's like, this is our life. You know, we don't have an extravagant house. Yeah. We have a, a moderate apartment. Welcome to our apartment. Right. And this is what Christian community looks like. And I think it just gave a, a better example. Looking back now, I can look at it with thankfulness sure. and see like yeah. how God was working through that. Yeah. And at the time, it just seems like what is going Because you have all these visions and plans mm-hmm. and ideas and then boom, it's just yeah. oh, all of that has to go away now. And and then God takes you down a whole other route that you weren't expecting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that could be devastating, but I I love the way you framed it is looking back upon it. You can look with fondness because your perspective has widened Mm -hmm. and you see that, okay, God was taking me down a different road. And at the time that seemed terrible, but that had to happen in order for us to get to this place here. Yeah. Yeah, it's good, man. That's a, a good story for anybody who's currently experiencing disappointment and discouragement and roadblocks. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about Romania and and ministering in that country. So they experienced communism. They're close to Russia. Mm -hmm. uh, And and a lot of Europe was taken up by communism Mm -hmm. and Marxism. Mm -hmm. Um, When did they become a non-communist country? It was 1989. So not that long ago. Yeah. I know my, not myself, but one generation back, like some of my friends that I work with, um, yeah, they were alive during communism. Mm. Some of them look back on it with favoritism. Some of them, a lot of them look back on it with uh, hatred. Mm. So, like, they're mixed feelings. It's kind of a, a sensitive topic at, at points. It just depends on who you're talking to. Sure. Yeah. Um, it's an interesting thing to talk about because a lot of Europe was, was not only fascinated with communism, but some of the countries got taken over by it. Mm-hmm. And uh, Marxism is gaining ascendancy here in the States yeah. and it's working its way out in various forms. You know, mm-hmm. like if it's a, if it's a hub, it's spokes look so different in so many different ways. Yeah. But if you've studied even a little bit, you can see it. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what has been the after or like, so if, if Marxism and communism was the earthquake, mm-hmm. you're living in the aftershocks and trying to minister and pastor and, and disciple, what does that look like? And how does that, what is the ch- unique challenge of that living in the aftershocks of a communist country? Um, cause the utopian dream did not happen. Yeah. The vision did not come to fruition. Um, I would say that. 
So, like, the, the general appeal of Marxism is generosity and receiving free stuff. Like, who doesn't want free stuff? For, for sure. Like, everyone wants free yeah. stuff. So, free one, college, universal basic income. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Free healthcare. Yeah, everyone's poor equally. Is, yeah. <laughs> so, it, it didn't work for Romania. The guy who was the communist dictator, his name was Nicolae Ceausescu and his wife. Um, he got charged with like multiple, multiple accounts of genocide because he let his country starve. Uh, and instead of actually addressing those problems, he held big parades that mm. tried to gloss over. Very those. North Korean. Yeah, to show off. That's actually where his inspiration came Is from. Is that right? Yeah. Um, so like Romania is in between East and West. So Ceausescu was communist. And then they started hanging out with Germany and the UK. And we're like, oh, there are some nice benefits of having like mutual trade agreements with other nations and with within on an individual level. And they kind of laxed off on that and did did a good job for a little bit. But then he went to China and bipartisan North Korea and saw the the hard work ethic. He wrote a treatise on I don't remember what it was called, but essentially he came back and was like, these people have a plan and these people are going to make it work and. Even though it doesn't work right now, it's going to work in the future. Mm-hmm. And he totally bought into that plan and said, like, we're just going to stick it, uh, stick with it, with the plan and just do the plan. Even if a lot of people die, we're going to do the plan. Yeah. And um, Can't make an omelet without cracking a few eggs. Exactly. So um, he did, they did that. Um, a lot of people died. Romanian got mad. And we were the only country in Europe that uh, the people revolted against communism. Mm. And we flipped, they flipped communism. How did that happen practically? Um, so there was a, the army and then there was the communist secret service. Because um, I don't know if you know this, but in China, China doesn't have an army. Uh, the Communist Party has an army. Oh, so people don't that. swear allegiance to the people and the protection of the people. They swear allegiance to the Communist Party and the ideals of communism. So that's China. Romania kind of started doing that. They had the Romanian secret police and they had the army. Mm. And they split between each other. One of them, I don't remember exactly which one, one of them sided with the communists, the other one sided with the people. And there was a, a revolution that happened, lots of gunshots. Like people, civil war, basically. Yeah, it was a, a mini civil war that happened for a couple days. And then uh, Ceausescu tried to helicopter flight out of Budapest, out of the capital to a safe place. Uh, his helicopter ran out of gas. They got captured, and then they tried him, captured and tried him within a couple hours because they didn't want the EU to stop them. Uh, they didn't want the the westernized nations to be like, well, no, let's not kill him. Let's just put him in jail or, you know, whatever. So they were just like, nope, we're going to firing squad. Both he and his wife, they got tried and shot. In 89. Yeah, that was mm. not too long ago. And then what, good. Yeah, and the aftermath of that is just the mentality that people have is you expect the government to do things. Like, if you, if you have a need, who's going to fulfill that need? The American dream is, you know, leave it to yourself. You can build something up yourself and, and work, work towards your goal. And I think that's a pretty biblical principle is that if you want something, work for it and go buy it. Um, but um, in, the, in the communist worldview, it's uh, wait for the state to give it to you. The state is your savior. The state's going to take yeah. care of everything. So. And, and to be clear... Marxism is materialistic in its view of God. So there is no God. It's atheistic. It's materialistic in that there is no spiritual reality out there. Mm-hmm. And you're right. The state does take the place of God. And sadly, you just look at across the board, mm-hmm. the dictator becomes godlike. And in some areas, he is a god. Like North Korea, he's worshipped as a god. And yeah. the people believe that he is a god. Yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, so the biggest aftermath that we still see today is just the mentality of you should receive stuff and every that they should receive stuff for free. Like when you do charity, it's partly expected, I mm. guess you could say, by some people. And uh, everybody's supposed to have the same. Like if you if you bless one family with X amount of dollars and you bless the second family with a little bit more than that, you did an injustice. Mm. Like that's wrong. So is that? Would you say that's envy? Yeah, for sure. It's, which causes it's, resentment. Yeah. Which causes bitterness. Which causes division in the body mm-hmm. real fast. Mm. Yeah, so the, the, the idea uh, uh, that there should be equal, it's not equal opportunity, which is what America is striving for. We're not there, but we're striving mm-hmm. for it. And, and I hope that's what the push towards justice enables. Mm-hmm. You know, there is a huge outcry for justice right now, and I'm yeah. for real justice. Mm-hmm. I am not for a facade justice that creates equal outcome, mm-hmm. which is what communism tries to do. And it always results in bloodshed, yeah. whether through starvation or through, you know, mass murder, uh, to, to create equal outcome. It's not ever happened one and two, the attempts to make it happen. It happens through blood. Yeah. But opportunity, of course. Yeah. And, and isn't it interesting that Jesus said, um, you know, there's that parable about the, the workers, you know, and, and the, they agree to a wage at the beginning of the day. And they're like, oh, that's fair. And so they go out and they begin to work. And then some come in hours later and he says, all right, go out and I'll pay you what's fair. And then more come in. And by the end of the story, you know, there's two hours left in the workday or so. And he gives them all the same amount of money. And rather than um, them wanting justice, the first workers, they don't go for justice because justice is, you said you'd pay us this. You did pay us this. That's just. Mm-hmm. Rather, they're envious of those who worked the last two hours and got the same pay. So they're envious of, they feel like they've been done wrong and an injustice has happened when it has not happened. Rather, a generosity has happened. And that's what God said. Why are you mad at me because I'm being generous? That's the problem. And isn't it interesting that you just described that? You said that a lot of the people in the fallout of communism are upset at generosity if there's a non-equal generosity. Mm -hmm. But any generosity you should be thankful for. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, I think that that the the dangers of communism um, and Marxism... You know, they they point at realities. The reason it's attractive is because Marx was good at pointing to um, social injustices. Like he was good at being able to do that. Mm -hmm. And so he, in some sense, had a correct diagnosis. But his method of fixing that was was terribly, terribly off. And it's not like it hasn't been tried and tested for a long time. Mm -hmm. And it's never worked even once. Anyway, um, so ministering in that environment, what does that look like practically for you Monday through Monday? Uh, it, it depends on who we're trying to reach. Um, uh, the people that I'm currently working on reaching are the people that I work with. So okay. it's not just that I am, uh, I'm not just a pastor. I also do on the side, I also have a front-end web development gig going nice. on with a couple friends of mine. Um, and through that, I'm able to network and meet with more people. That's great. And, uh, yeah, just meeting up with different people, building relationships through that, like sitting at, 
the typical programmer. You you sit at a cafe right, and on you, the computer and you and code you, yep. and you're, you're that dude, the hipster with the coffee. Yep. So I didn't even like coffee, but now I'm like a <laughs> connoisseur of coffee. That's but right. anyways, uh, just through that meeting with people and establishing routines with people, whether it be the person behind the counter, whether it be the people that I'm working with. Mm. And uh, thankful, I'm really happy that uh, the people that I work with most closely are Christian and we have really good conversation, gospel-centered conversation, uh, almost all, almost every day we work together. Just because of what's in the news, you look at it and it's like, what is justice? And then you start mm. talking about biblical justice or, you know, how do you feel about this or how do you feel about that? And yeah, yeah. what's going on in the world? So it's great to do those types of things. But then we also meet with other people. Um, uh, yeah, just through various means. Um, I also started doing, this was prior to, to, the, to the virus and everything. I also did boxing on the side. Huh, I got into nice. a gym and just punching people. We built relationships <laughs> and, uh, yeah, it's a fantastic gospel methodology. <laughs> hey, uh, if you can get into anything that creates rhythm and routine mm. and you meet with those same people over it's and over again. basically relational. Yeah. That's what we're trying to do. It's great. Um, there's also another church and speaking, there's also the relational aspect. Then we also have, um, this is just me personally. Uh, we don't do anything as a church yet, but there is a neighboring church. That's a really solid doctrinally sound church. And they do evangelism every Friday night out mm. on the street. Interesting. And they have like more of the, they're not street screechers, like turn or burn type people, yeah, but yeah. they do, uh, they do present the gospel in a public environment and you do, randomly talk with people and mm. you start having those conversations and I know a lot of people are like oh that's too abrasive to whatever but at the same time I, I've seen fruit from it yeah. so I can't You've seen people come into the church from that yeah mm. I've, I've seen people come into church I've seen Christians that were uh, kind of like swaying away from the faith be like man my faith needs to be more real like those mm. guys on the street and it's inspirational to them to be more yeah. evangelist evangelistic in their relational aspect so yeah. I've seen people go from being I don't want to say barely a Christian, but barely not involved, fruitful. not fruitful Christians to becoming fruitful Christians mm. and then non-Christians becoming Christians through those types wow. of ministries. So, I mean, I would, in, in that specific instance, I know that some people object to it, but I would say like, it's better to be faithful to what you believe is right and to err in that uh, than to do nothing. Yeah. You know? We do, we do, you could call that confrontational evangelism, cold yeah. call evangelism. Mm-hmm. We do that here. We, we go out and, and meet people mm-hmm. um, intentionally. Like we have tracks and we are, when we see someone, we are, okay, God put us in mm-hmm. your path and God put you in our path. And so we're going to talk to you about the gospel and pray with mm-hmm. you. And we do that. And we've not seen a lot of fruit from that, but, mm-hmm. but we're still going to keep doing it. Yeah. Um, method to me is not as important as that you do it. Yeah. You know, but I think it is helpful to understand what methods work for this soil. Mm-hmm. You know, I think there's wisdom in that. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's cool that that kind of evangelism works in, mm-hmm. in Romania. Now, um, I'm just curious, d- d- have you seen any challenges to biblical Christianity? I'm sure expository Bible teaching, if not preaching, mm-hmm. you know, gospel-centered um, view of the scriptures have you seen the the former you know communistic worldview and and now presenting this biblical worldview which is a whole different literally view of the world and reality mm-hmm. have that has there been clash there has there been eye-opening has there been any kind of like oh man yeah so just to add more detail to the 
overview of Romania. Yeah. Uh, the generally the people that look with fondness on communism is the older generation, generally Why? lower income, because they experienced it, and a lot of them will say that the typical praise is at least we had bread or mm. at least we had this, you know. So in some sense, it did work. You're saying? I'm saying that everybody got flour, bread, sugar, okay. and a couple other things. So like, you were not rich, but so for some people that were like homeless you would get an apartment and you would get uh, bread, sugar, flour. So for them, that's a step up. Gotcha. But for people that owned private businesses and they, you know, could have employed more people and, and enriched many more people's lives through uh, basically capitalism, uh, then you would have uh, those people opposed to it. So a gotcha. lot of older, lower income people look on fondness with communism or people that were politically in power at the time. Gotcha. Because those in political power under that system benefit the most. Oh yeah. And it was corrupt. Like it's still corrupt. If you want to see corruption to its finest, just go to the medical field. Like doctors, it's almost, it's almost an unspoken rule that you have to bribe your doctor if you want to be seen. Mm. So we went. So, is there universal healthcare there? Yes, there okay. is. Um, we still have universal healthcare. We still have um, pretty much universal schooling. Uh, the schools are all publicly uh, are funded by the government and colleges for the most part. You don't really have to pay anything for college okay. there. So there are a lot of uh, socialized things there. So, so is Romania socialist then? Um, on paper. They're they're kind of like I don't know they're just a typical European country okay. that helps I don't I don't know Europe it's, so Europe tends to be more socialist in nature mm-hmm. um, uh, but but yeah I'm I'm just curious as to if that's helpful um, you know like when we were in Uganda uh, doing ministry work there we got pulled over by the police and the army. And you always have to pay them just to leave. You know, even if you didn't do anything wrong, you, you have to give them money on the spot. And mm-hmm. often that's why they pull you over, you know, yeah. not because you did something wrong. And so the corruption is clearly there and the people all know it mm-hmm. and, and they find ways to get around it. Yeah. Um, but it seems like you're saying that's the, the case even with doctors and the healthcare system. Specifically doctors there. If Like let's say I can't think of one person that's gone to have a surgery done and has not bribed an anesthesiologist, a nurse, and a doctor. Like, Tell me what bribe looks like. Bribery looks like uh, you walk into the room and you straight up offer the money to the doctor. Or they've the EU has now put in some the, – the, the states put in a couple legislative laws that say like uh, we're going to put cameras to stop corruption. Well, the doctor goes outside to smoke a cigarette, and you're supposed to follow him out there. And and this is just known. This everybody is known. knows. Like this. everybody knows this, and it's really weird for me because like I'm not good at it. Right. <laughs> you know, I don't. I mean, I don't do it. So is it, if go. it's expected of you personally, mm-hmm. what what do you do when they like start insinuating like, hey, what do you got for me? Uh, I don't do the public medicine. I I, gotcha. I go to. They opened up a private hospital. Uh, I think the EU, or I don't know if this was, they ruled that it was unconstitutional to have only socialized medicine. So they have a private health care as well. And if you do the math, you'll end up paying the same pretty much. 
but by paying the doctors, I would rather, yeah, I would rather just pay straight up and be like, all right, I know that the price for this is a hundred dollars. I'm just going to go do it. And rather than shadily giving the doctor a hundred dollars to get your, yeah. I mean, it might be a little cheaper. You end up paying like $50 or $70 or something like that, but I'd rather just pay the full price and have my conscience. You're being honest before God. Yeah. yeah. So I I don't condone bribery in any way, shape or form. Gotcha. Yeah, it, it, it's so complex, man, because when you're dealing in a system that is corrupt to operate in that system, uh, it, it's it's an ethical dilemma, like mm-hmm. all the time, I could imagine. Yeah. Yeah. Like, how do you navigate in a Christian way and be honest and keep a clear conscience? And yeah, that would be challenging, man. Yeah. Well, uh, we haven't really had that bad of things where I've actually had to pay for expensive stuff. So I've always just gone to the private place and paid. The most expensive thing I did was had surgery on my wrist to remove a cyst at one point. And that charged me about $300 okay. to do the whole thing. That's so great. I'd rather just go pay the 300 bucks and get right. it done with. Right. Gotcha. It's awesome. So let's talk about your, your church. Yeah. Um, yeah, we got time. So your church started as a Bible study mm-hmm. and it is growing in in uh, discipleship, like what does it look like practically for you guys? Now, clearly since February, you've mm-hmm. not been able to be in your rhythm, but what does it look like for you guys in Romania? So when we started the Bible study, we started with people that were uh, pretty much already Christian or um, just starting out in their faith. We have, we're mostly a college student type deal. Like it's young adults who most of them aren't married and um, when, the, when they join the church, all it's the religion that they come from. It's essentially my parents' religion. It's not really their religion. So one of the things that we've been working on the most is like, what is the gospel? When we started getting together, we literally went through the book of Romans. Mm. That was the, the first thing we did. So let's make sure we're all on the same page yeah. so that you can clarify uh, what you actually believe and what your parents believed, what you believe, what's true, what's not true, what's tradition, and what is actual gospel. So we, we really split hairs on that. Like we, um, we went really in depth and we're like, this is a tradition. Uh, well, I didn't just tell them straight up. We would do, you know, of course, conversational, like what is this first teaching? Uh, how does Romania, what is the average Romanian view about this verse or this idea? Is this what people generally believe about Mm -hmm. this? And, uh, through those types of conversations, the group has grown, uh, spiritually a lot. Even though numerically at first we didn't grow, we've really uh, grew deep roots, I guess you yeah. could say, into yeah. the gospel. And that was, a, that was a huge win in our book. And then we started talking about uh, what is the church and what does evangelism look like uh, or discipleship. Because in my perspective, uh, disciple, evangelism is just part of discipleship. I agree with that. So it's like, you know. You're seeking disciples. Exactly. And we're making disciples. That's the whole point of the church is to make healthy disciples. So we're really big into discipleship. And right now we've just, for the last year and a half, pre-launch has just been discipling the beginning steps of discipleship. And the goal was once we start doing Sunday mornings, then we would be able to say like, all right, we have something to kind of point people to because for Romanians, there's a barrier that uh, if you're not meeting on Sunday morning, you're not a real church. Mm. So like we wanted to jump that barrier just for the sake of people getting in the door. Let's talk about this and then we can 
talk about that. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of like, uh, you know, Paul circumcised Timothy uh-huh. just to go into the synagogues and yep. preach. You don't need circumcision. Like, that was the whole point of circumcising yep. Timothy. Yep. And it's kind of the same thing that and we wanted. And he didn't do it to Titus on purpose. You remember that? He was like, mm-hmm. I purposefully, I think they took him to the council in Acts 15. And yeah. what are you going to do? He's not circumcised. Is he a Christian or not? Yeah. And, and he was able to remain. Yeah. And the point is, I think that you're making is, you know, Timothy for the sake of the gospel. Yes, let's do this. Mm-hmm. Titus for the sake of the gospel. Let's not do this. Yeah. But the point is for the sake of the gospel. Yeah. So for the sake of reaching people and for them to comprehend and know the gospel, we want to start, we want to cater to them on this level uh, and then start teaching what does true community actually look like? Because yeah. uh, Amongst Protestantism and even amongst the prevailing religion, which is Orthodox, um, it is membership based. You go on Sunday and then the rest of the week is your time. Like Mm. God's time is the hour on Sunday morning. As long as you give that, you're good and observe the major holidays. But aside from that, you don't need much. That's very much like Roman Catholicism here. Like you put it, you punch that card during Mm -hmm. mass, you get the sacrament, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe if you're hardcore, you do confession, Mm -hmm. um, but then you're, you're free the rest of the week. Yeah. Yeah. So is it East, was Eastern Orthodox part of the makeup of Romania? What was the major, because we talked earlier about cults, Mm -hmm. which I found fascinating. What, what is like the traditional religion of Romania, if there was such a thing, Mm -hmm. or was it? materialistic no it's the eastern church okay and uh the eastern church was pre-communism and then even through communism they allowed the eastern church to remain okay they were actually the tattletales on the all the other people that were secretly meeting in church in their Mm. homes for church so like baptist ministers would be arrested because one of their congregants went to confession and confessed that he whatever so uh and then that those priests from the orthodox church would um tattle essentially Mm, so they were in connection with the communist state yeah um i mean that's a debated point people would fight me tooth and nail many romanians would not like me saying that but uh, it's a i think it's a fact (laughs) so the 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 orthodox is this more like russian orthodox is this more like uh the the original split between rome and you know constantinian Mm -hmm. orthodox so if you ask any Orthodox person, they would say that we are all one church. We're the official church. Catholics broke off from us. We are the true... We're the, interesting Catholics would say this. I know. And like, Protestants say this. <laughs> I have a picture on my phone, and it's from the uh, one of the largest churches in Aradia. And uh, on the front, they were celebrating... It was like... One of the Apostles' Day, I don't remember exactly which one, but they printed off this schematic, this infographic that had a tree and then a big branch, then a little branch and a little branch and a little branch. And they put, uh, this is us. Uh, we are the true root of Christianity. It came through Orthodox. And then you have a pretty big branch and it was coated. It was a yellow color. It's like this one's green. The, the other one's yellow. And it says Roman Catholicism. And then you have the red ones, which are like Lutheran, Protestant. And then you had like dark purple, which is like charismatic and, <laughs> and all the other ones. So it just gets worse and worse to them as it goes on. Yeah. And, and, and so fascinating in Romania, what we call denominations, you got your mm-hmm. Methodists and your different kinds of Baptists, different yeah. kinds of Presbyterians. They call those cults. Yeah. Explain that. Well, before we get to that, let me, I'd like to finish this idea that uh, the Orthodox Church, they say, is one church, but it's just divided in synods. So you have Romanian Orthodox, 
they'll be Romanian Orthodox, not Russian Orthodox, because mm. Orthodox and Russian Orthodox is just Orthodoxy, the same church in Russia. A Russian expression. A Russian expression, you could say, of it. And the only difference amongst them is who, do you, which saints do you venerate on which day? Mm. They don't really have big, on the big theological issues, uh, they say they're all united on one front. Gotcha. So they are Orthodox. Would they ascribe to the Apostles' Creed? Yeah, of course. Hmm, Nicene? Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah, they, they hold to everything uh, pre the Great Schism. Yep. And then after that, they they think they've still done a couple things. Um, like I know they've signed a couple anti-LGBT stuff. The Orthodox Church? Yeah. The state church? Yeah. Wow. Well, right now we're secular by nature. After Orthodox... So after the fall of communism, Romania pretty much copy and pasted American constitution, but also with some socialized stuff from the communism. So I don't really know. It's a hybrid. Yeah, that's why I'm I'm confused as to what even to call them if they're democratic socialists Mm. or if they are just a republic or I don't know what they are, to be honest. Um, But I'd have to look it up. Yeah, yeah. I I just know from an experiential level what they are. Right. And I would say they are... um, pretty much a, uh, a, I don't want to say socialist, but they do have a lot of socialistic aspects like socialized healthcare, socialized ed- education, and uh, pensions are all socialized, all that type of hmm. stuff. So they run pretty heavy on that side. But after the fall of communism, it went to freedom of religion. They copied that really well from America. Sure. So now um, the, the state has zero involvement theoretically in... Um, religious practices. It's a separation of church and state. So now what the church, what the state does is any religion is called a cult. Mm. And they don't mean that in a derogatory manner. What they mean by that is they are different denominations. And these denominations have been recognized by the state as an official religion. So if you can get that status, um, then the state will actually give you money per member of your church. Mm. So membership is a really big deal in Romania. And, and it's probably not biblical church membership. No, it's uh, you, you literally signed a card, had it stamped, and that stamp, that stamp paper was photocopied back to the Capitol, and the Capitol signs off, and it goes, oh, that's oh, an wow. official member because it has their social security number on it. So that person is officially a registered Pentecostal. And then the Pentecostal pastor of that church that they ascribe to is, uh, is compensated for that membership. Whoa. So. Interesting. So, yeah, moving from church to church is frowned upon. Mm. Wow. So membership is very different than what we mean by biblical yeah. membership. Um, so that, that's got to be a challenge for you because as you're trying to – do you appreciate like nine marks, Mark mm-hmm. Dever and those guys? So as you're, as you're trying to instill a biblical framework for church membership mm-hmm. and then they have this framework of like cult or – Romanian membership. How do you battle that? Like, where, where do you do Bible study? Do you do, do you have a thorough process? How do you do that? Yeah. So, uh, studying God's word, um, and seeing what membership actually is. And, uh, just on principle, I'm going to follow what the, the Baptist cult, I do that with air quotations because <laughs> that's just what the Romanian state calls them. So you're not Baptist, but you practice believers baptism. Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. So they would call you and your church Baptist. Is that uh, so it's unique because I'm not part of a cult at all right mm. now. Technically, I'm just a nonprofit that practices church things. So the way you the way you start your own cult, you 
<laughs> 101, how to start your own cult. If you want to start your own Romanian cult the, and your own denomination that's recognized by the state, what you have to do is you start a 50, you start pretty much a 501c3, right. a nonprofit, and through that you gain membership uh, and you have to reach a certain number of memberships and you have to reproduce a certain number of churches. So mm. I don't know what it is. You can step up from... Uh, I used to know the numbers, but once you have a church and you, you do a, a bundle of churches, then it's called a, a union or a federation. And once you get to the, the federation level, then you can apply for cult level. <laughs> once you get a certain number of churches, I think you have to have, I think like 200 churches oh, man. and a minimum of a couple hundred thousand or a couple thousand members okay. of that to claim to be part of your thing. So once you get enough people to be part of that and you can become a state-recognized religion, then you can apply for the, the benefits of the state. And of all the denominations that I know of, there's only one, one cult <laughs> that's the Baptist cult. They, uh, they don't take money from the state on mm. principle because they don't want to be under that, uh, that pressure. Because if, if the state demands one day, oh, you have to accept this type of lifestyle into your church and you have to marry these types of people, then all of a sudden, um, you know, the state has significant sway financially over your church and yeah. who knows what many churches would do. Yeah. So the Baptists just don't even want that temptation to ever happen. So they're just like, you know what? We don't need your money. That's very Anabaptist yeah. going back to the roots of Baptists. So you're saying in that flavor, you're mm -hmm. Baptist. Yeah. Gotcha. If I had to subscribe to a creed, it would be the 1689 London Baptist. So Spurgeonite. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> nice. Not really. But. So, so again, in, in terms of Romanian membership, mm -hmm. that kind of church membership, you're, you're going through Bible verses and you're saying like, look, um, this is not biblical. Yeah. How, how would you frame church membership for them in a way that makes sense? So we want to switch terminology, I believe, just because membership is such a loaded word. Um, I was speaking to Scott, our mm -hmm. church planting coach, and he mm -hmm. was saying that at his church, he does the term partnership. Mm -hmm. So that way people get the idea that, oh, it's more than a country club. I'm actually invested in this process. And uh, I, I can't think of a good Romanian word that mm -hmm. actually encapsulates what I want, but it would be something along the lines of fellowship. Like gotcha. you have to be, Koinonia. you have to be in the fellowship to actually, that's what it means. You know, partnership. Like, yeah. To be, yeah. To be in the fellowship of the church. Like you have to be a regular attendant. You have to be active in the church, praying and, and, and giving financially. Like mm -hmm. these are things that we just, that's what true membership is in, in a scriptural sense. And that's what we want to preach. So, uh, I don't know if we're actually going to do like, the same style of membership that they, that the Romanian culture perpetuates. Gotcha. No, that's wise. I think that every, every church or denomination or whatever has to, to decide what is their membership process going to look like and mm -hmm. what is specifically church membership look like here. Yeah. Uh, we do, we do two books. They're little, but, but they squash that country club, Amazon mm -hmm. prime, you know, kind of mentality Sam's Club where it's called I Am a Church Member mm -hmm. they have to read that by Tom Rainer and then they have to read the Nine Marks book on membership yeah. by Lehman and, uh, and and we feel like if you can get those two books in your head mm -hmm. you have an understanding of what we mean by membership yeah. 
And then, you know, they read the, our confession, which is the Gospel Coalition's confession. Then they mm-hmm. read the Acts 29, what we believe. And, and they say, yes, we, we want to be a part of this church in this way. But practically, it sounds like what you're saying. Yeah. Like we're committed to community. We're committed to worshiping together. We're committed to giving. We're committed mm-hmm. to serving. It sounds very, in practice, the same. Yeah. Um, but we do call it membership. However, we do a good job to make sure they understand. Like we don't mean <laughs> yeah. you receive benefits by being a member, which is what membership means in America. Yeah. Uh, we're going to do, it will be official. Like we have a, I had to write out uh, for the X29 process. <clears throat> Excuse me. They make you write out your membership process. What does yeah. it look like to get involved in the church? So there is a process and it involves, um, you know, meeting with the pastor, saying how you met Christ. What are you, do you truly understand the gospel? And then uh, you get welcomed into fellowship after that. And, and there is like a, the pastor that does the interview process has a, um, um, has like a, not a checklist, but uh, certain things that they want the, to communicate with the person in question who wants to join. Like, did you read what we believe? Did you read mm-hmm. this thing? Uh, what is membership truly? Like we want to communicate biblical principles. Like even if they come, even if they come to a small group and they learn you know, the, the theoretical part of what does it mean to be a membership? We want to make sure that every member uh, can not necessarily recite, but be able to articulate in their own way uh, what is different between our church membership and what is what is the world teaching, pretty much what is the world teaching and what does uh, true membership The Romanian like? world, we could say. Yeah, yeah, I guess you could say. Yeah, interesting. I, I appreciate that because it does look different in every context, mm-hmm. you know, uh, in Uganda, they're very, very favorable to membership. Mm-hmm. And so they have to like guard against it in a sense, which sounds so weird, right? Mm-hmm. Like, why would you guard membership? But like you offer membership and everyone's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I want to be a member yeah. where you, they have to do a lot of work to put a filter on that mm-hmm. so that they understand. Do you, do you understand what you're getting into? Yeah. And every country and every place yeah. looks different. You know, I'm sure it looks different in other cities, mm-hmm. but in Pittsburgh, you know, we kind of know the flavor here. Yeah. Well, in Romania, I we're going to practice something that's unheard of is uh, guarding the table. You mm. know, you're familiar know, with guarding the supper. Yeah, yeah. You don't just let anybody take mm-hmm. it. You have to have a valid profession of faith. Mm-hmm. We have that. And we also do want to guard membership because uh, that's the testimony of the church. Like if you say, oh, I'm, a, I'm an active, involved, in fellowship with these guys at, at Metanoia Church, but I also accept this, 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 this. And these are like antithetical to the gospel. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we don't really want that. Yeah. We want to be able to say like, no, as a church, this is how we stand. This is what we believe. So there is a, I don't want to say a hoop you have to jump through, but there is a, um, a validation process that we want to helpful. go through in some way. Yeah. So we would, we would do that with membership. Mm-hmm. So the way we, the way we kind of frame it is the door to the church, literally like our worship gathering mm-hmm. is wide open. Yeah. Like, come one, sure. come all fill it up. Let's for go. Sure. The door to membership is much smaller. Mm-hmm. And for us, it might be a little... T- people have argued, like, that's too small a door, man. Well, we, we want a tight membership. Yeah. Okay? Then the door to uh, deacon is much smaller, and the door to elder is very, very, very slim. Mm-hmm. And we've done that on purpose because we want to be most unified at the leadership levels. We want to be unified in membership. But as far as, like, I consider the, the Sunday worship gathering... It is for the members. Mm-hmm. It is for serving attenders. But it's also, in a sense, evangelistic. Where, like, man, just come one, come all. Yeah. Uh, I think that's what First Corinthians five 
it makes a very specific uh, instance of put this person out of the fellowship. It's the one who has his mother-in-law you mm-hmm. know, in sexual relations. And the fellowship is not that they're in the church building. It's that they're part of the membership. And he's like, you, you have to disassociate with this mm-hmm. person here. Um, but Paul talks in that same passage um, about not disassociating with the sexually immoral of the world because then you would have to go out of the world. And so the idea is we need to understand the difference between those in the church formally, membership, Mm -hmm. or what you'd call it partnership, and then those who are attending, checking it out, being evangelized, still being discipled in a sense, Mm -hmm. but not inside this door where we would put you out if you were not adhering to the gospel without repentance, Mm -hmm. you know, if you weren't adhering to the essentials of what a Christian life looks like without fighting your sin. Um, but as far as like people in sin in the worship gathering, come on, come all. So we do not guard the table though, like you would. And, and our, our idea behind that is we see it as an invitation to Christ Mm -hmm. more than like a, um, a membership benefit, um, though I get the theological rationale there, I really do. Mm-hmm. And um, and you know, Mark Dever, they they when they do at Capitol Hill uh, the Lord's Supper, they say all the members please stand up, and those who are not members stay s- seated, and then they only allow the members to come forward, which mm-hmm. is a guarded table yeah. view, which I respect that, I appreciate that. We use it more, and I don't see any theological problem with this as an invitation to Christ. Mm-hmm. You know, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death, the gospel, until he comes. Do this in remembrance of me. And so we, we make a, a, a statement. If there's new people present, we say, like, look, if you don't have the substance, we don't want you to take the symbol of the substance. Mm-hmm. It doesn't even make sense. Yeah. But if you would like to, to receive Christ, you know, you can do this as an act of faith. Not an altar call, but maybe like a visual uh, bodily act of faith to express, you know, I don't know what tradition you came from, but we came, I came from a tradition where there was altar calls. Mm-hmm. And so if you wanted to receive the Lord and pray the prayer and all this stuff, you would come down to the altar and then you would sit with the pastor and they mm-hmm. would have this gospel discussion. Um, I don't do that with people. Even when I evangelize, I don't call for a sinner's prayer on the spot. Mm-hmm. Um, but in one sense, I do believe that we do take some kind of belief now we're responding to the Holy Spirit's moving. We don't believe on our own, mm-hmm. but I do think that if there is some response, genuine response to the gospel, it's because there is the drawing of God and the moving of God and the regeneration, which allows the faith to happen. But we allow for that kind of expression of faith by coming forward and taking the Lord's Supper. Um, you know, we could talk about that off off air, if you will, but that's what we do. I'm just telling yeah, you yeah, yeah. how we kind of do that okay yeah yeah. which is which is there's all kind of freedom there Mm -hmm. in the expressions of what we do now i know some reformed guys especially calvin would be like how dare you You know (laughs) you're going to jail yeah right (laughs) if i was in geneva for sure yeah anything you would like to say man to our people or to those who would be listening to the podcast this doesn't just go to our people it goes all over the place anything you would like to say about um, Romania about the gospel about the need I do have a question about the diversity but yeah um, one the people of Romania are um, coming out of communism they seem they might seem cold on the outside but uh, once you get to know them 
and you develop a friendship with them, they are some of the most, um, they have deep-rooted friendship. Mm -hmm. I guess, uh, I don't remember who said it, but there's an expression that you generally have like two types of culture. One is like a peach where you have like the fruit on the outside, ultra super soft, and then on the inside you have like the super hard shell. And then you have the the coconut, which is like super hard on the outside, but once you get into it, you have this nice meaty, fresh whatever. And the same thing with like relationships. Uh, what I realized, at least down south in Georgia, is that people are, you can get surface level with anybody. You can stand in Walmart lines and be like, hey man, how's the weather? How's your dog? Oh, it's so cute. You know, and like this, that, the other. But once you start beginning to talk about anything, you can get anything real awkward. Of substance. Yeah, anything of substance. Like, you know, how's your marriage? Poof, mm. Shut off instantly. Who are you to judge? Da 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 da. Mm. Uh, so you can, there's a, a really hard barrier there. Uh, Romania is the opposite of that, mm. where like, if you're walking down the street in public, people don't smile. They're, if you stand on a tram, they are very quiet inside the train. And if you talk loud, you're immediately pointed out as the American. Some people even shush you. <laughs> no way. Yeah. Have you ever been shushed? Uh, I've been shushed, yes. No way. Yeah. What do you do? Shush. <laughs> <laughs> Say sorry. <laughs> I don't know. Sorry, my bad. Wow. Yeah. So Americans are seen by Romanians as just loud people. Yeah. That's funny. Yeah. So, um, I mean, it's changing over time with the next generation. They're getting, you know, YouTube and you just see like, you know, you can be as loud as you want and right. express yourself, whatever, because that's the greatest good, apparently. Un- unfortunately, that is an American value. Yeah. Individual um, Authenticity. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's the oh, biggest, yeah. whatever. Anyways, I say all that to say that uh, if you meet a Romanian, uh, befriend them. Like, mm. they are super... Once you develop a meaningful relationship with them, they will open up and they you can have amazing gospel conversations with them. And you already have being having a church that's orthodox. They are essentially uh, imagine they're just Christians that haven't been to church in a very like they're church goers that haven't been to church in a very long time. You have that basis with them. Mm. They believe in this. They believe in scripture. They believe in Jesus. They believe probably little extra things about Jesus and stuff. But I mean, you have a a basis to work off of that you can talk about. And uh, they're just super, they are super nice people once you get to know them. That's great. I love it. So yeah. Diversity in Romania. You know, America is a a diverse land. There's all ethnicities here. Mm -hmm. What about Romania? Is it, is it Romanian period or is it kind of diverse? Is there different European ethnicities? What is it? So, if you want to talk about geography, there's there are some tensions because you know you look at a map and you're like, oh, it's been that way for hundreds of years. You know, you'd be wrong because mm. not so long ago, World War One, World War Two, Hungary was a lot bigger. Austria Hungary was a lot bigger than it used to be, and even prior to that, like uh, they were. My town of Aradia actually has um, it has whenever you drive up to it, it has Aradia. And then underneath it has the Hungarian name that it used to be hmm. a couple hundred years ago. I, I, I'm going to slaughter it, but it's like Negivorod. Hmm. And it's, um, sorry for any Hungarian that's listening. <laughs> I don't know Hungarian. Um, but it used to be part of Hungary. So there is a strong tension of this used to be my land. Uh, we would like it back. Hmm. So they do have that aspect of um, there is that tension. So they would not call themselves Romanian. They would call themselves Hungarian. No, there are actually some Hungarian places that are wanting autonomy. Mm. And there's actually a specific town. I don't remember what it's called, but they are setting up 
their own little nation state inside, and they they wave the Hungarian flag, but remaining. Wow. It's not as bad as like Chop or Chaz or Chaz, whatever it's yeah. called. <laughs> uh, but <laughs> that's they, not gonna last. I know that's not gonna last. Um, but anyways, um, with the Hungarians, they teach their kids Hungarian, and they don't teach them Romanian on purpose, wow. so that they just so they keep... want to remain distinctly Hungarian. Wow. Yeah, there are areas on the western side that's like that. And I haven't been to the east, northeastern side, but there are parts of Moldova that are like that. Some Romanians want parts of Moldova back because mm. it used to be that way, but not anymore. So you do have those types of divides. Um, but everyone, at the end of the day, they're, they're not like violent terrorist extremists or whatever. Gotcha. Probably one of the more pressing ones. Well, Romanians, specifically in Aradia, do need to learn to love their Hungarians because uh, you know, there there are Hungarian jokes that are offensive, and so know, they, so there is an ethnic tension between the Romanians and the Hungarians. Yeah, not that they'd like spit on each other or anything, but just to passively make jokes or passive aggressive remarks. That's mm-hmm. like, uh, oh, you're just Hungarian or whatever. You know, he doesn't know anything. So there is a um, prejudice that's mm-hmm. maybe not as open, but it's certainly in closed circles. There's prejudice yeah. from both sides. Yeah, mm-hmm. I would say so. Um, but I say that that one's not to the degree that it is amongst gypsies and Romanians. Mm, explain that. So, um, gypsies came from, this is again, historical. It goes back thousands of years and we really don't know, but, uh, gypsies are kind of a mysterious nomadic people. And we believe based on DNA testing and all that fun stuff that, uh, they come from India. Mm. So the working theory is that they come from the lowest caste system of India. They were uh, theoretically called the untouchables, which means like if you touch them, you get bad karma because they're so gross of people. And their jobs was to work in latrines and all that nasty mm-hmm. jobs. Anyways, long, long, long time ago, the king sent them to war. And instead of going to war, they circumnavigated the whole war and just kept going. They never Whoa. stopped. So they came up from India into Europe. They were escaped slaves, essentially. Mm-hmm. And uh, they would go throughout the world. Some of them kept going east, kept going east. And that's why you have some of them that uh, like moved all the way to America, even. Um, and nobody knew where they came from. In fact, the word gypsy is short for Egyptian mm. because people used to think they were from Egypt. But now we know that they're not from Egypt. Uh, Romania did not take in gypsies because of the kindness of their heart. We took them in as slaves. Mm. So uh, we had slavery with gypsies for quite a long time. I can't name the year off the top of my head, and I don't want to be incorrect. Prior to communism? Yeah, prior to communism. We had Roman- we had uh, gypsy slaves. This was way prior to communism. And then essentially we just said, um, oh, uh, during World War II, we also, uh, Hitler and Romania together, we collabed with them at the first part of the war. And uh, we collabed with them and tried to get rid of genetically clean Romania again mm. to get rid of gypsies. So there were a ton of gypsies that also died in with the concentration camps. Yeah. Yep. So we tried to get rid of them. Not we, but right. I understand. <laughs> pre- ro- previous generations of Romanians yeah. tried to get rid of, of gypsies. And uh, now essentially uh, they said, oh, well, we, we kind of feel bad about that. So here, we'll give you this piece of government land. And you can just squat on it. And mm. they give them some some form of welfare, but not really great. So everywhere you go in every village, you'll have the Romanian village. And their houses culturally are just really close together, one to another. And then you'll go, there's a 
a physical distance towards the, wherever the government land is, and then there's a piece of government land dedicated to the gypsy people. So there's like legit segregation distance between mm-hmm. the two. And uh, gypsies are just known for really bad culture, like, you know, uh, marrying at super young ages, 13, 14 years old, and the, the Romania just kind of lets them do their thing. And uh, they just don't really, they don't really care. And uh, gypsies generally do not work. And if they do work, they work like farmhand land, like, you know, I forget what you call them, day hands? Is mm-hmm. that what it's called? Like where you Day hire, laborers. Day laborers, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. They generally do like day labor stuff for people and don't get paid very much. A lot of times they'll just get paid in alcohol because mm. alcoholism is such a high thing. So there's like a lot of really bad cultural aspects amongst gypsies, but Romanians will say, ah, it's in their blood. Like that's, that's mm. I don't... I don't know what your definition of racism is. That's but it right there. That's, that's racism. Yeah. The inherent in this people group are these negative characteristics. Yeah, and that's a common thing said amongst Romanians is that it's just in their blood. Mm. They are just, that's the way they are just because that's the way they are. And um, even if you're not explicitly racist in your remarks, uh, nobody hires a gypsy mm. because you just know that they're going to steal something. Like, in their brain they're like they don't they're not educated they're gonna steal from me and uh there's been a strong push from the west to like try to get companies to employ gypsies but a lot of that money's just gone missing and Mm. a lot of people just don't hire gypsies i know many cases where we tried to help gypsies get hired and they would work and the first month they'd be like oh i can only pay you half price because i don't have the full salary so this is when your parents were doing the widows and orphans work before the church and we were trying to work with the lower income people so that included gypsies gypsies, as well so we would um we would actually try to get people employed like the specific example is we tried to hire this one lady who had four or five kids i don't she has more than five now but at the time she only had four or five and um she was a widow, no man, so we put her kids into daycare system and helped ourselves with them and tried to get this lady to work. And um, the the guy that hired her said, uh, you know, I can only pay you half price this month. The next month he said, I don't have it, but next month I'll have a full price salary for you. And then the third month she was fired. And then he just went to the next gypsy and wow, did the same thing to her. Shady, man. Yeah, so you get like three months of work for 20 bucks. And, yeah, and that's not sustainable. I can understand why if I was in that mm-hmm. situation, well, I'm not working. Yeah, like, exactly. I'm not ripped and, off. and if you claim unemployment, you get better benefits than you would if you would not if you would go to work. Yeah. And then what are you going to do with your kids as well? Right. Like you, a lot of them have kids, and a lot of them are out of wedlock or along right. that nature. So it's just like it's a really bad cycle. So um, when I was working with my parents, one of the cool things about the ministry that they did was we would um, one we would do education programs with children so that we could, the idea was the kids go to school, the average school day is only from eight to 12, and most people work a lot longer hours than that. So we did an after school program to help occupy, babysit the kids essentially, um, so that the parents could technically go and work. And we did educational things, we did um, this program where we got everybody to be you have to be accredited for everything, but to accredit being janitors so that anyone, these ladies could go get jobs as janitors gotcha. and, uh, you know, try to help them be able to be more competitive in the, in the marketplace and then also help take care of their kids. Mm-hmm. And during the time that we took care of their kids, uh, I would teach religion. So I would also teach religion, math, 
music and art. Mm, so that's cool. Man. I was a teacher at one point. In my that's life. great. And then through that uh, relationship with the, I was working with the kids. I would walk home with the kids intentionally talk with the parents and be like, Hey man, your kid's doing great. He's learning this, 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 how was your day at work? And through that built relationship with the parents. And that's, that's cool. eventually what led to the church plants at my parents oh, village. Wow. So now are these gypsies that you're working? Yeah. With so in the church, that was uh, gypsy and Romanian, mm. which is uh which is really cool. It's kind of like a redemptive thing yeah. where, we, where in our church, we had gypsy and Romanian coming together. And so it's, it's a multi-ethnic our, church. Yeah. That changed a lot of the, changed a lot of the, the culture, I guess you could say, and the village that we worked in. Hmm. Uh, but again, we don't work there anymore. Now we're in the city and we're doing our own thing. And we're, we're thinking of ways, especially now that, uh, you know, everything's going on with in the world with the riots and everything. I'm really having to rethink uh, how am I in an urban context with how am I going to get um, super rich Romanians together with super poor gypsies because the city has all of that like it's a more diverse i guess you could say and there's more class differences but the beauty of the gospel is it unites us all in christ like i look at first corinthians and it's like don't give don't give partiality to the rich uh we're all united in christ Mm -hmm. and i i just see that i look at the first generation of christians and i'm like that is amazing that christ can bring those people together not on not on like uh i don't know what you want to call it on nothing other than the gospel. Yeah. Like the only glue that holds them together is not that they both enjoy golf. Right. It's right. not that they both enjoy Something whatever. Something superficial. And it's it's really obvious to see that in a lot of churches where it's like cliquish. You know, we're united, but we're also all musicians or we're all architects or lawyers, mm-hmm. doctors, successful people. And you don't see any diversity. But what's the beauty of the gospel is that it unites diverse people groups together. Amen. All the elect of God, we're all one race and we're all part Amen. of that. So yeah, we framed it here at eternal city as one biblically. We are all one race mm-hmm. because we all came from Adam Acts yeah. 17 from one man. He made every nation of men. But then there's, if you want to talk about races, there's the race of Adam mm-hmm. and then there's the race of the second Adam. Mm-hmm. You're either in Adam or you're in Christ. Um, and let, let's say this though. And I know you would agree with this. The first century churches had their problems. You know, Galatians had that issue where Peter's pulling back from the Gentiles mm-hmm. and Paul had to confront him to his face. And it's like, you're not acting in accord with the gospel. Yeah. And, you know, then the court, you just read Corinthians, you're like, oh my gosh, there were so many problems mm-hmm. in that church with eating, not eating, you know, getting drunk at the Lord's Supper and, you know, idol worship and eating meat worship, you know, sexual morality. Yeah. So it's not like, I'm with you. I agree that the gospel is what unites us and mm-hmm. it's not superficial. But I also want to, because we experience a lot of tension around this area mm-hmm. in our church. Like it's, it's, it's a constant, the last six years have been a constant. Uh, this is our hardest prince. Our, we have five core values. Mm-hmm. One is um, to unify peoples. And that one is the one that's the hardest for us. Yeah. Um, and because there's always tension, man, mm-hmm. uh, cultural tension and ethnic tension and historical tension. And, mm-hmm. um, but the, the, that's okay because that was how it was in the first century too. Yeah. You know, you read the Bible and if you have eyes to see it, the tension was there Oh yeah, and they were working through it. And, and, and the idea is we can work out practically what we are positionally, like mm-hmm. positionally, we are unified. Mm-hmm. Period. 
You're in Christ. I'm in Christ. We are one. Mm -hmm. But practically, that does need to work out. Similar to justification, right? You are righteous in Christ. Mm -hmm. But you need to now start practicing that. And you'll see, uh, even throughout Scripture, you'll see both Gentile and Jew being commanded to bend over backwards for each other. Like stepping outside of your comfort zone. Absolutely. and just being united in Christ, like forget this type of stuff. Like it doesn't matter your Jewish heritage or whatever. Uh, sometimes you, for the sake of your Jewish brethren, don't go to certain feasts That's or right. for the sake of your, your Jewish brethren, Acts 15, don't drink blood from animals, right. you know? Right. So don't get your steak raw, man. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Although I do love a good, <laughs> you love a, a medium yeah. to rare, more like rare, rare. rare. Like it bleeds when you yeah. cut it, right? It's like, still mooing as yeah. I cut it. It's good. Well, why don't we finish up with this, brother? For those listening to this, they've stumbled upon it. They are they are wondering what are these guys talking about this gospel? Why don't you share the gospel um, with with somebody who's not heard it before? How would you encourage them to trust in Christ? Yeah. Uh, so the the message of the gospel is the gospel literally means good news and in order for something to be good news you have to understand the bad news mm. and the bad news would be that we are we've we've offended god and uh not only that we know evil exists in the world i don't think any one of us especially even in this postmodern society we still see like there is evil there is injustice and it's ironic to see in the streets people that deny God and deny right and wrong are standing up for justice. Like that just shows the image of God's written on our hearts that like there is justice, there is dignity, and there is worth in the human being. Mm-hmm. But there, if there is right and wrong, as we were saying earlier, uh, we are wrong. Like you've done wrong before. And the thing is, God defines what's right and wrong. And since God's defined what's right and wrong, uh, there is a standard, and we've fallen drastically short of that standard. And that is the bad news. But the good news of the gospel is that even though we've fallen short of, of God's holy and righteous standard, Jesus Christ came into the flesh, and he lived the perfect life on our behalf and offers it freely to anyone who has faith. Mm. So if we, be- if we confess our sins to Christ and we believe in him, uh, we're fully forgiven and united to him uh, and united to each other as well right. through, through the blood of Christ. That's and that's the, that's the good news of the gospel. Yeah, and it is good news, man. It is. Yeah. And, and daily we need to remember that even as Christians. Mm-hmm. You know, there's so many implications from the gospel. Oh, yeah. Um, you don't have to justify yourself. You don't have to prove your worth. Mm-hmm. You're valuable without accomplishing anything. You don't have to deny that you're, I'm not a bad person. No, you can fully mm, take absolutely. that on and be like, no, man, I am totally a hypocrite. I am totally a bad person, but Christ has forgiven me. Right. And because of that love that he had for us, I want to love other people. He brought us from spiritual deadness to spiritual life. We now love God. And there is a miraculous work of what's called regeneration, bringing us from death to life, being reborn is what it's sometimes re- referred to as in the Gospels. Uh, we're, we're new in Christ. The old's gone, the new has come, and uh, we're alive in Christ. I love it. I love it. Spiritual life, brother. Well, thank you so much for doing this, man. Yeah, and uh, safe travels back to your country. And uh, man, I pray that God gives you a fruitful uh, church, man. Yeah. Uh, you have the truth, you have the gospel, and it sounds like the people 
are ready and need, you know, regeneration and discipleship. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, if you'd like to find out more about uh, what we do or even keep up with uh, how the ministry is going, you can check us out at uh, CC. It's Comunitatea Cristina. It's just, I shortened it for everyone that doesn't speak Romanian. It's just ccmetanoia.com. How do you spell it? C-C-M-E-T-A-N-I. Oh my goodness. I'm having a <laughs> meta, M-E-T-A-N-O-I-A.com. Perfect. Yeah. Perfect. And you speak Romanian. Yes, I do. I and speak you preach Romanian. In Romanian. I preach in Romanian. I, I, I'll, I vocalize in Romanian. That's code word for singing. I just make a joyful noise, I guess nice. you could say in Romanian because yeah, I yeah. don't sing well, but it's great. Yeah. Well, thank you, man, so much for doing this. I appreciate it. I know it's going to bless people. Yeah, hope so. All right. Thanks, brother. Thank you. Thank you.